Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker. I have the privilege of being the pastor of a congregation in the southeast of England, in the town of Crawley, in the neighborhood of Maidenbower, and also of being your host for this podcast. In it, we work our way through a selection of Spurgeon sermons, this gifted Victorian pastor-preacher, renowned in his day and since as a preacher of Jesus Christ. And that's our concern, to learn from him, both as a preacher to us and an example for us, so that we too can uh, enjoy what he says and benefit from it. So we work our way through sermons week by week, And this week we're reading sermons 906 to 912, one a day. And that's carrying us uh, this week into the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, volume 16. So if you're trying to join up with us, now would be a good time to do that. And uh, you can find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon if you want to follow along more or less with the daily sermons. And then each week, a select sermon representative of Spurgeon's output. And this week, it is Sermon 910, and God willing, next week, 914. So this week, overwhelming obligations, and the week after, work in us and work by us. So you can find all that information, and and you can find more uh, podcasts at uh, mediagratii.org slash podcasts. If you go there, you'll get a, a newsletter you can sign up to as well so that over time you'll be able to build up this library of these select sermons. So that brings us then to this week's sermon, Overwhelming Obligations. And if you're of a suspicious frame of mind, you might immediately think, ah, oh, this is going to be uh, full of uh, heavy exhortations and uh, more of the whip and the club than the rod and the staff. But not at all. Psalm 116 and verse 12 is the text for a sermon that was preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. No date is given on this occasion, but the text is, What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? As soon as you hear that text, you begin to understand how uh, Spurgeon is uh, cleverly subverting our sense when he talks about overwhelming obligations. His introduction is brief. Uh, He occasionally does this, just a few lines to get us into the substance. He earnestly prays that the vision of the Christ of God, the mercy of God, the love of God may appear to all your eyes and may a voice say in your conscience, both to saint and sinner, I did all this for thee. What hast thou done for me? So there is an overwhelming obligation here, but it's the obligation that the grace of God imposes upon us. He begins with us casting up a sum in arithmetic. He wants us to do a little bit of spiritual mathematics, and that's demanded by the text. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? So the first thing we need to do is to reckon up the benefits that God has bestowed. And he wants us to start with the temporal mercies that we have received, secondary but still valuable. And he sweeps across them talks, for example, let me just give you a a, a sample of this opening statement. There's a special providence in the endowment of life to each individual creature. David did not disdain to trace back the hand of God to the hour of his nativity, and Paul adored the grace of God that separated him from the time that his mother gave him birth. Our gratitude may, in like manner, revert to the days when we hung upon the breast, 
Or in the case of some, you may thank the goodness that supplied the lack of a mother's tender love. Childhood's early days might then make our thoughts busy and our tongues vocal with praise. But here we are now. We have been preserved, some of us, these 30 or 40 years. We might have been cut down and punished in our sin. We might have been swept away to the place where despair makes eternal night. You see how he's, he's building this up and, and then he carries us from infancy through youth into middle and old age. And he reviews the way that God has cared for us and sustained us and blessed us, uh, either by sparing us particular things or sustaining us when we were not spared. Cast up the sum, he asks us. Draw a line and ask what is due to God for even these common boons of providence. So you have the temporal mercies. But what about the spiritual blessings which you've received? Not so long ago, you were in the gall of bitterness and the bonds of iniquity. Think about what you were when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And think about uh, what you have now received. How you were entirely shut up in the, in the misery and, and darkness and gloom of sin. And how you've now, in God's mercy, escaped like a bird out of the net. And instead of talking of, of sin as a thing unpardonable, we can say that God has put away all our iniquity and cast our transgressions into the depths of the sea. So we've had forgiven sin. But that's only the beginning, says Spurgeon. For after that, God has comforted us like a mother comforts her children, binding up our wounds, covering us with a robe of righteousness. We've been adopted into his family, even though we were strangers and aliens by nature, foes by long habit, rebels and traitors by our revolt against his government. All this has been given to us as we've been made alive together with Christ and brought into the family of God. He wants us to remember that the benefits we've received are not a mere intent, not a mere benevolence, a good willing, but beneficence, a good doing. God has not only willed but accomplished great mercies toward us. Kindness, says Spurgeon, like ore of gold in the breast of the creature, may never be minted into the coin of benefit or pass current for its real worth. Not all donations expended in charity are effectual to relieve distress, but the benefits of God are all fully beneficial. They answer the ends they are designed to serve. There's a real substance and action in the good intent of God toward us. It works out in reality. All his benefits then, says Spurgeon. Ring that note again. His benefits are so many, so various, so minute, that they often escape our observation while they exactly meet our needs. We're not even aware of all the good things that God is bestowing upon us. You've had, he says, preserving mercies, sustaining mercies, enriching mercies, sanctifying mercies. Who can count them all? My dear brothers, it is no small benefit that God has conferred upon some of us that we are members of a happy church on earth, that we are united together in the bonds of love. I know some of you used to be members of other churches where there were periodical conflicts and you are glad enough that you've come with a loving and happy people where you can serve the Lord to your heart's content and meet with warm-hearted Christians who will bid you Godspeed. My heart exults in the thought of all the prosperity we've enjoyed in this place. The Lord's name be praised. Even as a church, he says, over and above the mercies which have come to us as private Christians, I would say, and I would invite you to join me in saying, what shall we render to the Lord for all his benefits toward us? So he's moving from the individual now to the corporate or congregational. 
But he says, remember too, that God has given us himself to be our portion. And we're looking forward to the blessed day when he shall say to us, come up higher. And from the lower room of the feast, we shall ascend into the upper chamber, nearer to the king, to sit at his right hand and feast forever. Oh, the depths of his mercy. Oh, the heights of his loving kindness. Faithfulness has followed us. Not a promise has been broken. Not one good thing has failed us. So Spurgeon's galloped into this text and galloped into this declaration of the the temporal mercies and the spiritual mercies, uh, the ones that begin our spiritual existence, the uh, ones that attend us along the way, the ones that we can count, the ones that we're still expecting. What have I given you now, he says, but just a sort of general outline of the mercies the Lord has bestowed on us and the benefits we have received at his hand. You can, you can each one of you, he says, try and fill that outline up. But the, the conclusion of the whole, truly God is good and I have found him so. There's a sum for you, says Spurgeon. If you want to use your arithmetical faculties, sit down when you can get an hour's quiet and try to tell up all the precious thoughts of God towards you, all his benefits. That would be a good exercise for you, would it not? Good exercise for many of us to stop just for an hour and for that hour, and, and trust me, the hour will not begin to begin to exhaust the list, but to think through, to tot up all God's benefits towards you. And you will begin to see what a great weight of mercies have been bestowed. So we began then with a, a casting up of an arithmetical sum And now, he says, move on to a calculation of the gratitude which is due to God for all this. So you've weighed up the benefits. Now calculate the gratitude which is due to God. At this point in the sermon, he moves to a a more overtly theological structure. So we've had the experimental reality of divine benefits. Now he asks us to consider those benefits as they come to us from the Father and from the Son, and from the Holy Ghost, and to think about what we owe in gratitude to each person of the Godhead. So with regard to the Father, as many as have believed in Christ were chosen of God the Father from before all worlds. He might have left them unchosen. It was his own absolute good pleasure which wrote them in the role of the elect. Now, as Spurgeon moves into this second point, you'll notice uh, that he's doing two things. He's both advancing his sermon and he's bringing us now to direct more gratitude toward God, the Father, God, the Son and God, the Holy Ghost. But what he's also doing is is taking us into another view of the benefits, because in thinking about the gratitude that we owe to the persons of the Godhead, he's making us think of the benefits we've received from Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So before the sun began to shine or the moon to march in her courses, God did choose me, in whom there was nothing to engross his love, nothing to attract his favour. Oh my God, if it be so that I, of all the sons of Adam, should be made a distinguishing object of your grace and the subject of your discriminating favour, take me, take my body, take my soul, take my spirit, take my goods, my talents, my faculties, take all I have and all I am and all I ever hope to be, for I am yours. You have loosed my bonds, but your mercy has bound me to your service forever. 
What a beautiful statement of the uh, the sweet consecration of a redeemed soul to God the Father for his electing love. And that's the Father, says Spurgeon. What about God the Son? As many of you as have believed on him, think for a moment on the habitation of the highest glory. Consider how Jesus left his Father's throne, deserted the courts of angels, and came down to robe himself in an infant's clay. So now we have one of those uh, beautiful uh, brief overviews of the uh, the career of Christ, as it were. And he says, now that's, that's where he began, and that's what he's done. And then he shows him living and suffering and, and then dying. And he emphasizes the, the horrors of the, the death of the cross, uh, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, cries the Son. And he asks then, when you think of that love that's been shown and the benefits that it's brought, what tribute shall we lay at the pierced feet? What present shall we put into that nailed hand? Where are the kisses that shall be sweet enough for his dear wounds? Where is adoration that shall be reverent enough for his blessed and exalted person? Daughters of music, bring your sweetest songs. You men of wealth, bring him your treasures. You men of fame and learning, come lay your laurels at his feet. Let us all bring all that we have, for such a Christ as this deserves more than all. What shall we render, Christ of God, to you for all your benefits towards us? Now again, notice if you're you're thinking about sermon structure, one thing that's become apparent as we've been working through these sermons Spurgeon has a has a real knack. He he has these uh, essentially paragraphs of speech. He breaks up his sermon into these uh, units of of thought and and rhetorical fervor. But very often, and he's excellent at this, the each paragraph ends with something of a, a little crescendo. Each paragraph ends with something of a, a summary or a thrust at times to carry the, the very essence of what he's just said into the soul. So he's done it with regard to God, to God the Father. He's done it with regard to God the Son. He's going to do something similar with regard to the Holy Ghost. He says, how often the Holy Ghost has comforted you. How very frequently in your calm moments has he revealed Christ to you. How often has the blessed truth been laid home to you with a divine savour, which it never could have had if it had not been for him. He is God and the angels worship him. And yet he's come into the closest possible contact with you. Christ was incarnate, and the flesh in which he was incarnate was pure and perfect. The Holy Ghost was not incarnate, but still he comes to dwell in the bodies of his saints, bodies still impure, still unholy. Oh, what grace and condescension is this! And then here's this more uh, summary statement. Oh, blessed dove, thou dear comforter, thou kind lover of the fallen sons of men, thy condescension is matchless. We love thee even as we love Christ. Christ himself, and this night, if we ask the question, what shall we render unto the Lord the Holy Ghost for all his benefits towards us? We know not how to answer, but can only say, take us, take us, Holy Spirit, use us, fill us with yourself, sanctify us to your holiest purposes, use us right up, make us living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, for it is our reasonable service." Again, direct address to the persons of the Godhead, this sweet spiritual sense of reality in the very act of preaching. 
So he says, maybe this way the text may come a little more vividly before your minds. He knows what he's doing. You've had another opportunity of adding up all the benefits of God, calculating what you ought to do. And so he comes then to what is really his his third point, although it's not broken out as such. He says, I want to come in closing to be very personal and practical. I wish to speak very pointedly to you as individuals, but there are so many of you that some are sure to slip away in the crowd. I mean, sometimes people can be offended because they think the preacher is speaking to them, to which the answer is, I was speaking to you. I was speaking directly to you. Sometimes that's a delight. Uh, There's somebody who's been coming to the congregation where I serve uh, in the last few I suppose, weeks or months, and uh, this person has said on more than one occasion, it's, it's almost like you've been listening in during the week. It's as if you're speaking about me, to me. And, and there's something there that is is sweet, and it's a spiritual reality in preaching. And Spurgeon says, it's not just coincidental. I want to address each one of you individually. He uses his his humour here just to catch our ears. I half wish, he says, I were in the position of the preacher who had but one hearer and addressed him as dearly beloved Roger. I want to put the question of my text, he says, as though only one person were here and that one person yourself. What shall I render to the Lord? Never mind your brother, never mind your neighbour, your sister, your husband, your wife or anybody else just now. If you are a saved soul, the question for you is, what shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? What shall I render? And he really presses this home. He, He uses examples of individual favour from the scriptures and says, put yourself in the position of that man, that woman who's received these distinct mercies. Imagine that 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 person were on the platform tonight instead of me and and that the voice of the well-beloved should speak in music to you and the lips that are like lilies dropping sweet-smelling myrrh could talk to each of you. Suppose Christ now is speaking to you directly. What would you render to him then? Well, he says, listen to me as if Christ were dealing with you the way he dealt with those individuals in the scriptures. Listen to to the very voice of God. What will you render? He asks whether you've ever thought of what men and women could render. He talks about the Judsons in Burma, Adoniram Judson and his wife. Uh, Not quite sure which Mrs. Judson he'd be referring to particularly at this time, but ready to sacrifice all for Christ or the lives described in Fox's martyrology. He says, are you anything like them? Then, Then if they fell short of God's glory, how far short must you? So he says, let me ask you a side question. What have you rendered? You're getting old now, perhaps. You're getting to the prime of life. What have you done for Christ up to this time? And now you, you begin to feel the screw turning, and it's a, it's a holy pressure. Converted late, perhaps, or if converted young, it doesn't matter. Still the question must come. What have you done up to this point? He says, I dare not answer that question myself, and I know I'm not the worst here. He says, I have to deal with this. I have to face this question. How can any of us ask, what have I rendered with any sense of self-content? We must all drop a tear, feel abashed and say, good Lord, 
Let not the future be as barren as the past, but by thy mercy help us to a better and a nobler sort of living. And then if these are the side, that's the first side question, then he's got some sub questions, each of them designed to carry this prime question. What will you render into our hearts? The first of them, how old are you? Live hard, beloved, live hard, he urges. Live fast in a spiritual sense, for you have little time to use and none to waste. Get as much done as can be done for your dear Lord before he calls you to to his face. You're young, perhaps, someone says. Well, then, you've got opportunity to serve God. You see, sweeping between the the elderly and the, the youthful. If you're not diligent now in your early days, there's no likelihood that you will be afterwards. Set the pace early, he says, since you have the especial and peculiar advantage of early piety, early holiness. Oh, render to the Lord the more, because he's opened before you a wider field and given you more time to cultivate it than full many of his people are known have known so how old are you are you older then live hard and fast while you have the opportunity are you younger get up your pace and run as long as you can as fast as you can second sub question what are your capacities oh one says i can't do much well then do the little you can do it all do it up to the very point do not leave an inch untouched if you can only do a little do all of that and do it heartily, and keep at it till you die. Do not let your talents lie idle if God has given you talents. Your talents are not meant for your gain, not merely to serve the world, but rather to serve your God, who has redeemed you with the precious blood of Jesus. Take care then, whether you have much or little, to give him all. You see what he does with each of these. How old are you? He takes you to one extreme, aged, to the other, youthful. What are your capacities? Very little. Well, use the little. Well, much more. Then use it all. How did you serve Satan before you were converted? What rare boys some of you were, not sparing body or soul to enjoy the pleasures of sin. With what zest and fervour and force and vehemence did you dance to the tune of the devil's music? Well, would you now serve God half as well as some of the devils serve him? You you have a a new friend, a new lover, a new husband. And is he going to look you in the face and say, you don't love me like you did the old, you don't serve me so zealously? Is Christ going to say to any man or woman, you do not love me so well as you did the world? You never wearied in serving the world. You never wearied in serving yourself. You never wearied in serving the devil, but you get weary of serving me. Wake up, says Spurgeon. Wake up, my poor heart. What are you at to have served sin at such a rate and then to serve Christ so little? Another sub-question, how do you serve yourselves? He says, I like to see a man of business with his hands full and his wits about him. The drones, the indolent fellows, the lazy men who go about the shop half asleep and seem as if they never did wake up. What's the use of them? Men who seem to cumber the earth. Men who never did see a snail unless they happened to meet one, for they could never have overtaken it. They travel so slowly. And such men, he says, are of little use to God or man. But the most of you are diligent in business. You're ready to turn every opportunity to your advantage. Why then would you be lively in the service of mammon and laggard in the service of Christ? 
heart and soul, manliness, vigour, vehemence, let the utmost strain of all our powers be put forth in the service of him who was never supine or dilatory or dilatory. I think you can probably pronounce that both ways, depending on which side of the Atlantic you're from. In the service of our souls when they had to be redeemed. His point's a serious one. Was Christ ever casual or slow in saving us? Well, why should we be casual or slow in serving him? Another side question. How do you think such service as you have rendered will look when you come to see it by the light of eternity? When you you put all your time in the light of that great day and then the eternity that follows. Oh, nothing of life will be worth having lived when we come to die except that part of it which was devoted and consecrated to Christ. So live with your deathbeds in immediate prospect. Live in the light of the next world and so will your pulse be quickened and your heart excited in the Master's service. If you think your your life might be shorter than you'd feared, remember that you should be living every day as if it were your last. And so now the question again. What shall we render? What shall I render unto the Lord? Let the question go all around the pews and let everybody answer. What shall I render? Again, here's this holy personal pressure. Is there any new thing I can do for Christ that I never did before? Can I not speak a word for Christ to somebody even tonight? Tonight, because you cannot overtake the loss of a single opportunity. Tomorrow's mercies will bring tomorrow's obligations. Today's obligations must be discharged today. What shall I render tonight? Is there anybody I can speak to of Jesus before I retire to my chamber? Yes, a little thing, but let me do it. What shall I render? Let me give my God praise tonight somehow. Can you imagine walking out of a church building with that ringing in your ears and echoing around your heart? He says, there's the communion table around which we're about to gather. That may help me to render him some homage. I will take the cup of salvation there and call upon his name. Then tomorrow I go out into the world to my accustomed labours. What shall I render then? I'll give part of my substance to God, but I'll try to consecrate all tomorrow and next day to him. While I'm at work, if I drive a plane or use a hammer, he doesn't mean fly a plane, he means drive a plane, a, a piece of carpentry equipment. What if I stand at a counter? or in the fields or in the streets. I will ask that my thoughts may be up to God, that I may be kept from sin, and that by my example I may render some tribute of honour to his name in the sight of my fellow men, and I will try to seize every opportunity that comes in my way of telling to sinners round what a dear saviour I have found. John Kennick's hymn. So his question is, what are you going to do with your opportunities? What will you render to the Lord in the light of all those benefits that have come to you? Those ones that you you have tasted and experienced over time. You filtered through the grid of the Trinity to understand how Father, Son and Holy Ghost have blessed you. What are you going to give to the Lord? He is not unrighteous to forget your work and labour of love, which you have showed toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire, he says, quoting scripture, that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And typically Spurgeonic, he says, some of you aren't saved. You cannot yet answer the question, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? Your question is, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe on him now, 
Trust him. That's the point. Trust Jesus Christ. You may come to him and be saved at once. And then, but not till then, you will truly begin to serve him. It's a it's a brief and punchy end to a fairly brief and punchy sermon. I hope it brings something of the force of that sermon to our souls when we first cast up that sum in holy arithmetic concerning the temporal and the spiritual mercies that we've received, the, the actual blessings that God has bestowed, and then we calculate the gratitude due to God our Father, to God the Son, to Jesus Christ, and to God the Holy Spirit. And then we think, this is me. I have been so blessed. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I hope that I, I hope that you, that we all can respond in righteousness to this overwhelming obligation that is laid upon us because of the blessings of God toward us. I hope you'll join us again next week for Sermon 914, Work in Us and Work by Us. Again, you can sign up at mediagratii.org slash podcasts to get a a newsletter each week with just a little introduction to the sermon and a, a link to the PDF or link to the website where you can read it. And if you're able to, please do give us a review. Uh, please do Uh, Tell us if you've enjoyed the podcast. Uh, It really helps us, certainly encourages us, uh, but it gives the the podcast hopefully a little more prominence so that we can, by God's grace, uh, bring something of what we owe as those who've received his mercies to many more and to tell to sinners round what a great saviour we have found to point to his redeeming blood and say, behold, the way to God. Thank you for listening. Do join us again and God bless you until then.